Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21 is our reading. The text is 11 through 16. Revelation 19, beginning at verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses." From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings and the the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both great, small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who is in its presence had done, who in his, its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is the word of the Lord. So in our last sermon on the book of Revelation, we looked at the marriage supper of the Lamb that is described in the first part of chapter 19. It's a wonderful subject uh, to consider as it has to do with the love between God and his people, we rejoice in Jesus as the bridegroom of his church. Well, chapter 19 continues by describing Jesus from a different perspective. Now, as here as one who judges and who makes war on his enemies and the enemies of his people. And this, too, is held up to us as a reason for joy and for worship and for thanksgiving. This too belongs to the hope of the people of God. Just as the verses that were describing the marriage supper of the Lamb describe the end of the world, so this passage about Jesus as the one who judges and makes war is describing the end of the world. This passage describes the final victory of Jesus over the forces of evil in this world. The whole of the Bible, of the biblical story, describes God's conquest against Satan and his kingdom, and this passage describes the culmination 
of that conquest. Jesus is presented here as the great victor over all his enemies and the enemies of his kingdom. Significant for our understanding of this passage that one of the common ways that the Bible describes God is as a warrior. Tremper Longman and Daniel Reed have written a book called God is a Warrior. And in, the, in that book, they trace that theme through the whole scriptures, and their introductory chapter is titled The Divine Warrior as a Central Biblical Motif. God reveals himself in many ways in the Bible, and one of them a very significant one, is as a divine warrior who fights against his enemies and the enemies of his people and whose purpose in history is to complete and to overthrow the defeat of evil in this world. One of the seminal passages uh, in this, for this theme in Scripture is Exodus, <coughs> Exodus 15, which, descri- which uh, describes the, which celebrates rather the, the destruction of Pharaoh and his hosts in the Red Sea. And then verse 7 of Exodus 15 sings, in, your great, in the greatness of your power, O Lord, you overthrow your adversaries, you send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. The text that we're going to be looking at this morning is the culmination of that theme in the Bible. Now, we have to remember that this is highly symbolic. We're not to expect some kind of literal, physical battle. At the end of time, on the basis of these verses, this is describing the victory that Jesus will win over Satan and his followers at the end of the age. Paul describes the same event in 2 Thessalonians 1, uh, 7 and 8, and there he writes that the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels uh, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're not to think of this as some kind of literal battle that's going to happen at the end, but as the final defeat and judgment of all evildoers, those who have resisted and refused the Lord Jesus Christ. So John writes in verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. The white horse is a symbol of purity. The word white is often used in the book of Revelation as a symbol of holiness. Often it is used to describe the robes of the saints who have endured persecution and remained faithful. One of the important nuances of the symbol of whiteness in the book of Revelation particularly has to do with the the rightness of God and his people in the battle against sin and evil. The martyrs, for instance, are killed as evildoers. In the world, they are considered to be evildoers, but the white robes that they receive point to their vindication. In Revelation 20, verse 11, we read of the great white throne. We see whiteness and judgment 
together there. The white horse, therefore, in Revelation 19, does not just symbolize holiness in general, but the righteousness of Jesus and his followers in the fight against the forces of evil. And this idea is continued in the description of the one sitting on the horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. So the the one sitting on the horse is going to make war, and the war will result in a lot of death and a lot of suffering. Some of the imagery to come, as we have seen, is graphic and messy. War is horrific and ugly. The image of this pas- the imagery of this passage does not hide that fact. But the one sitting on the white horse is on the side of the right. This war is necessary, and from God's side it is perfectly just. Justice indeed requires it. If God were not fighting this war, he would not be just. So all this belongs to God's glory. The one sitting on the horse is called faithful and true. And both of those terms have to do with the fulfilling of promises. The people of God has always lived in the light of the promises of God. Their hope has always been tied to God's faithfulness, to his word, to his promises. Those promises are the key to our salvation. But our salvation is also tied up with the defeat of evil and evildoers in the world. Salvation involves the defeat of sin and evil in our own lives as we are forgiven and renewed in the image of God, but it also involves the defeat of evil in the world. And part of the uh, hope that sustains us on our way is the promise of a world where evil has been banished. Second Peter 3 13 says, but according to this promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Our text is about the fulfillment of that promise in 2 Peter 3. There are many promises, of course, in the Bible concerning the final judgment. Psalm 96, 11 through 3, calls all of creation to sing for joy Before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. When Paul in Acts 17 introduced the gospel to the intellectuals of of Athens, he urged them to repent because, quote, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And that man, of course, is our risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ. So the one who is coming to judge and to make war is Jesus. He is described as sitting on a white horse called Faithful and True and will judge and make war in righteousness. The great emphasis in that verse is on the righteousness of the coming judgment and how it is something that has been promised and can be depended on because Jesus is called Faithful and true. One of the great aspects of our hope is a world from which evil has been banished 
And the way to that world involves a final judgment in which the world will be judged in righteousness. Think of all the evil in the world today. Think of sexual slavery. Think of the evil of abortion. Think of the, end, the evil of the persecution of the church. Think of corrupt governments that steal from their own people so that millions and millions live in grinding poverty as a result, as a direct result of that corruption. There's no end to the suffering because of evil in the world, and one day that will be gone. One day that will be over. The world is going to be judged in righteousness. Evildoers will get what they deserve. God is going to be glorified in his justice. All will be made right. But we must consider a subject like this with the awareness that by nature we are no better than any evildoer in the world. We are sinners saved by grace. We cannot stand before God in our own merits, but only in the righteousness of Christ. Jesus paid the penalty that we deserve. We have been rescued from Satan's kingdom, but those who have refused to submit to God There are those who have given themselves over to fight against God and his people. And part of the hope that God holds out for his people is that their enemies have been defeated and they will be judged in the final judgment. Now, this paragraph that we're looking at, 11 through 16 of uh, chapter 19, has a lot of description of Jesus. Descriptions of Jesus are given to us, to nurture us in our faith, in our love, and in our hope. One of the great purposes of the Bible is to tell us about God and about Jesus and what they are done, what they have done, what they are doing, what they will do, and in order to elicit our worship and our delight and our trust and our hope and our obedience. When the Bible tells us about Jesus, as it does here, we are to savor what it says for the strengthening of our faith and our love and our hope. Verse 12 says, his eyes are like a flame of fire. These words are used more often of the risen and exalted Christ in the book of Revelation. Commentaries uh, mostly suggest that the description of the exalted Christ's eyes as eyes that are like flames of fire has to do with his penetrating and piercing gaze, and that in his role as a divine judge. In the description of Jesus in the letter to the church at Theatira, we find this same phrase as Jesus is introduced at the first part of that letter. He has eyes like a flame of fire. And then later on in the same letter, the same little paragraph, he says, I am he who searches the mind and heart and I will give to each of you according to your works. See, the same idea expressed more generally of God in Hebrews 4.13, which says, And no creature is hidden in his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So Jesus, who is described in our text as the one who will defeat all his enemies in righteous judgment, he has eyes like a flame of fire. His righteous judgment on the wicked will be on the basis of perfect and exhaustive knowledge of the minds and hearts of his enemies. 
Now, in our human uh, justice system, justice, the trials of justice, one of the problems is that human beings do not have that kind of knowledge of the one who is being judged. But that is not a problem for Jesus. His judgment of sinners will be on the basis of perfect knowledge, perfect understanding. Nothing is hidden from his sight. Every evil thought and every motivation will be laid bare and judged with perfect righteousness. Verse 12 continues, On his head are many diadems. A diadem is a kind of a crown or a royal headband. It wouldn't be the kind of crown that we would first uh, imagine when we hear that word crown, but a kind of headband that uh, was used in ancient times um, as a symbol of royalty. The diadems on Jesus' head here are a contrast to the diadems on the head of the dragon in chapter 2, verse 3, and on the beast in chapter 13, verse 1. The devil and his earthly representatives claim power and authority of kingship. But the exalted Jesus is the true cosmic king who rules over all other claims to authority and power. The verse 16 of Revelation 19 goes on to say, On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Again, think of the world in which we are living today. The various rulers of this world have legitimate authority to rule, but that authority comes from God, as we know from Romans 13.1. For there is no authority except from God, and those who exist have been instituted by God. But human authorities often do not acknowledge that their authority comes from God, and they often do not exercise their authority in submission to God's higher authority. And we see that when governments promote all kinds of evil beliefs and behavior in the West. Claims to authority are mostly rooted in humanistic thought, and in other parts of the world, either variations in humanism, such as communism or other completely false religions. There are all kinds of claims to authority that are not rooted in and submissive to God's ultimate authority. When Jesus comes, then when this vision of Jesus making war on a white horse is fulfilled, all claims to authority that are not consistent with Jesus' authority will be put in their place. The authority of Jesus, which at the present is very real but very hidden, will be demonstrated before all the world. Jesus will be revealed as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. All human authorities that have defied the authority of God will be finally and utterly conquered. As Paul puts it in Philippians 2, 11 and 12, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Then, when this passage is fulfilled, will be the final answer to the prayer of Psalm 72. 
to 11. May all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. So his eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. That last phrase is interesting uh, because this passage is kind of full of names of Jesus. He is called faithful and true. He is called the word of God. His name is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So much of what we know about God and about Jesus uh, is revealed to us by means of his names. But now we are told above that, beyond that, he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And this suggests that we do not have and are not given exhaustive knowledge of the greatness and the glory and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. What we know from the Bible is wonderful and glorious and awesome, but there is more to Jesus than what has been revealed and that what we can comprehend. So in the context of this passage, we're given all these wonderful names of Jesus that tell us so much of his greatness and his glory and his power, but there's so much more. That's the point of this last phrase of of this verse. What we know about Jesus is wonderful and glorious, but it it does not exhaust all that there is to know. There is so much more. Verse 13. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Now, some commentators think that the reference refers here, the reference here refers to Jesus' own blood on the cross, but that's probably not the point here. The context here is the war, Jesus' war uh, against his enemies. And so the blood here is a reference to the blood of his enemies. The background is uh, ex- uh, Isaiah 63, 1 through 3, which speaks of God coming in judgment against his enemies. I'll just quote the last couple verses there. And um, we, it starts with the question, why is your re- apparel red and your garments like him who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the people no one was with me. And listen, I trod, I trod them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. So this is describing war. The Bible is not hesitant to use language that, make us, that may make us feel rather squeamish. You have to keep in mind that this is a perfectly righteous war on the part of Jesus. There's no injustice here. We have to also keep in mind that this is symbolism for the final defeat of the forces of evil, that evil that fight against God and his people. These are people who slit the throats of Christians before cameras so all the world can see. These are people who shed the blood of millions and millions of babies and call it woman's health. The language in Scripture about the judgment of God upon the wicked reflects the divine abhorrence of wickedness and those who cruelly engage 
in it. And then we have another name for our great warrior God who will one day complete his victory over all that is evil. The name by which he is called is the Word of God. The Word of God in Scripture. It has to do both with revelation and with God accomplishing his will through simply speaking. By his word, God reveals himself and his plan and his will to us, but he also accomplishes his purposes through the power of his word. And all of that is associated with Jesus as he is called uh, the word of God. John 1, of course, is the most familiar passage in this connection where we read, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Later on, the word is identified explicitly as Jesus. The word of God is associated with creation. It is associated with upholding and governing the whole creation on a moment-by-moment basis, but it is also associated with God accomplishing his plan for salvation and judgment. So we have a verse like Isaiah 55, 11, which says that the word of God, the word that goes out from God's mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I send it. So calling Jesus the word of God in Revelation 19 highlights Jesus' power and his glory in another way. There's an emphasis in the whole passage on, on kingship. And here, by calling Jesus the Word of God, the text is pointing to the fact that this king is so powerful that he does not have to lift a finger to accomplish his purposes. In the context, he is waging war against his enemies. And he is so powerful that all he has to do is speak in order to to defeat and to destroy them. Think again of the the powerful rulers of this world in their arrogance, in not submitting to King Jesus. Some of them have atomic arsenals at their disposal. Some of them have mighty armies at their disposal. But Jesus will overcome them simply by speaking. As Martin Luther wrote in The Mighty Fortress is Our God, the Prince of darkness, grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Verse 14 describes the enemies, or the, the armies rather, of heaven. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen and white and pure, were following him on white horses. This army apparently is composed of both angels and saints. 2 Thessalonians 1.7 says that at the end of the age, the Lord will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. And Revelation uh, 17.14 says that the Lamb will conquer his enemies, quote, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. passage on a whole is what Christ does. But this verse suggests that the armies of heaven, both angels and saints, share in Jesus' victory. They're not described as doing anything here except following Jesus. 
But they are following the Lord, and that probably implies some kind of involvement in the battle. There are many verses in the New Testament that describe angels as being involved in the final judgment, and Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 2, teaches that the saints will judge the world. At the very least, we will be there, we will be observing, we will be agreeing with the righteous judgment of Christ. The armies of heaven are on white horses, like their leader. They're dressed in white garments. Even as we, as in the here and now, we are part of the army of God. So in the final battle, we will be there, following our king into battle and on the side of righteousness. We will agree with what Jesus will be doing, and we will have some part in it. Verse 15 brings our attention back to Jesus. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Sharp sword, the sharp sword that comes from his mouth is the word of God, and so the point is the same as the the point of his name being the word of God. The, The Bible often uses the imagery of a sharp sword to teach us about the power of the word of God. Revelation, or Isaiah 11.4 is part of the Old Testament background here, which says of the coming Messiah, He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. second part of the verse comes from Psalm 2, which speaks of the Davidic king who is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And It says, you shall break them, your enemies, with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Then we come to the last part of verse 15. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Jesus' victory over sin and evil does not only involve bearing the wrath of God himself in the place of his people, it also involves expressing the wrath of God against those who reject him and who insist on living in rebellion against him. This is a fearful sentence. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Now, the application of all this can go in a number of ways. Certainly, there is warning here for all who are not faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And that warning can can be expressed in the language of Psalm 2, which, as we have seen, is an important background to the truths that we have considered from these verses in Revelation 19. Psalm 2, 10 through 12 says, Now, therefore... O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. And then, blessed are all who take refuge in him. This warning is addressed to the kings of the earth. The rulers who set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, but it certainly applies to all who are living in rebellion against Christ. We do not want to be enemies of the one who is described 
in Revelation 19, 11 through 16 on the day when he comes to judge and make war. On the other hand, the whole Bible teaches, blessed are all who take refuge in him. The one who is described in our text as the same one who came to save his people from their sins. He's the one who gave his life so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. When we read of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, we are reminded that Jesus bore that wrath and that fury in the place of his people. There is no need for any of us to be on the wrong side in this final war that Revelation 19 describes. Through believing in Jesus and following him, we can be included in the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, following Jesus on white horses. The focus of the application in its own context here in Revelation 19 is on celebration and worship. Revelation 19, 1 and 2. Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her, on her the blood of his servants. When we look at the world in our time, we see a great deal of the warfare of warfare against Christ and his church. We see it in the persecution of Christians in many places in the world. We see it in the hatred of the radical left in the West. We see it in so many other ways in our culture, rebellion against God in sexuality, living for pleasure rather than living for God, selfishness, all manner of idolatry. And while we are no better than any of our enemies, we have been rescued from Satan's kingdom and included in Christ's kingdom. And the passage that we have looked at celebrates the final victory over God, the enemies of God and his people. It is given to us to comfort us. It is given to encourage us. It is given to nurture our love and worship for Christ. May the Lord bless it to us in all those ways. Let's pray. O oh Lord our God, so often our thoughts of you are so small, and we don't have a true sense of, of your glory and your greatness. And we do acknowledge that we will know that much more clearly when we are with you, but you do have given us much in your word and in this part of your word, and we are grateful for that. We, we worship our Lord Jesus Christ, the one on the white horse who judges and makes war. We worship you as the one, Lord Jesus, who uh, has won the victory over sin and evil, and that you have done that in multiple ways, inclu <coughs> including giving your own life to bear the wrath of God against the wickedness of your, <coughs> your people. And we thank you that we can look at a verse like this, at a passage like this, from that perspective, from the perspective of belonging to you. 
We worship you as the one who will bring to its completion and culmination the victory that you have begun. We know that all the enemies of your people, all those who refuse to submit and to come, that they will be defeated, they will be judged, and that that is the way, that that belongs to the way of your ushering in the new heavens and the new earth and the perfection of your people. Lord, we pray that, that you would bless the preaching of the gospel throughout the world. We know that that is going on simultaneously, that you, as you are working towards the final victory, we pray that many, many, many may be rescued from that horrible end. But we know that not all of them will be, and that they will continue in their rebellion. And we pray then that you will fulfill this passage upon them for your glory and for the salvation and worship of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.